Hi and welcome to Seek Sustainable Japan. This is kind of a travel-related podcast this time, talking with Naomichi Hiro Teruzaki. And he has had such a diverse, interesting career. Uh, he started in ocean law, <laughs> very interesting, in the 70s, studying in the UK, in London. And then he went on to work in hospitality. And uh, more recently, he's been an advisor um, for airline industry and uh, transportation industry companies uh, in terms of reusing used ki kitchen oil, uh, cooking oil, and clothing, and biomass, and other materials into jet fuel and it's called Sustainable Air Fuel. He's also an active campaigner against the Jingu Gaiyan project, redevelopment project uh, planned for Tokyo, but a lot of people in the community uh, do not agree with the plans to knock down the old baseball stadium and heritage buildings and there's beautiful old ginkgo trees and the plan is to cut down thousands, a thousand trees, I believe. Um, so there's a lot of protests about why uh, all this money wants to be spent on a redevelopment that nobody wants. Uh, so he's been part of that campaign. And after the talk, he told me that he's also one of the interviewers for asylum seekers. And so he really has such diverse insights from a variety of governance and sustainability and uh, environmental topics. Um, so I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. We had some technical difficulties. There's a little bit of echoing as you listen, um, but I hope you're able to get some of the key insights about the things that he talks about, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, I look forward to your comments and uh, questions. If you have any, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, JJ Walsh on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram is Inbound Ambassador. You can also find me on LinkedIn and my YouTube channel is also JJ Walsh. Hi, good evening, Joy. Thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So you are connected with Rochelle Cup and Marianne Hara. Uh, you are all campaigning for the Save Jingu Gaiyan project. Uh, so maybe we'll start with that and then we'll talk a bit more about some of your other topics. So how did yes. you get involved with Save Jingu Gaiyan? Well, okay, I have some update. And uh, I think Marian Hara, uh, about two weeks ago, when she appeared on your show, uh, she explained about our campaign. And prior to that, Rochelle, the leader in our team uh, spoke on your program on a couple of occasions. But uh, since we, we made a press conference at uh, Tocho, Tokyo Metropolitan Government Press Office uh, Press Club, uh, then actually I just received from Rochelle uh, another shocking news that uh, <laughs> let me, I just, just got this one, this message from Rochelle, but uh, there was, uh, let me read this out, okay, on January the 30th, uh, just three days ago, there was a general meeting of the Environmental Assessment Council of Tokyo government, which uh, which were held for the redevelopment of Jingu Gaiyan, obviously for that purpose. However, you know, just prior to that meeting, Governor Koike, Koike-san, approved the construction start notification, which was submitted on January the 17th. And almost at the same time, the ECOMOS Japan National Committee reported to the governor of Tokyo <clears throat> and to the assembly that the Metropolitan Environment Assessment Council that 
a large number of false reports and materials have been submitted. This is her ECOMOS claim. And, but you know, even before that, prior to that, Koike-san already has approved the construction start notification. But the story doesn't end here. I think they are still you know, in the process of considering. And it's unusual, but according to this uh, uh, email I received from Rochelle, but they are actually reconvening uh, the meeting, council meeting to reconsider. That is how, where it stands now. So I think we urge the audience and wh whoever is interested in this Jingu Gaian project to to raise you know, their voice, his or her voice, and write to perhaps a developer, Mitsui Fudo-san, and, 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 and make their point. We really urge people who are interested in to do so. Yeah. So Thank they, you, Joy. maybe they can they can still sign up on the the campaign website, the Save Jingu Gaian, and add their voices there. And if they can write directly to the developer and add their voices as well. Uh, keep sharing the information. That's a really good yes. good way, uh, right? Your share will be keep you know, everybody updated with the development, so. Yeah, yeah. well, thank you. But thank you for all the work you're doing. Mm. I know it's frustrating and it seems like you're having lots of setbacks, but it's not mm. over till it's over, right? <laughs> we are not just uh, brutally, you know, against. We like the government and the governor to sit back and reconsider whatever, just to save not cutting like 900 over 900 trees or, you know, there may be a way to avoid that. Not all 950 may, may not be saved, but there may be a way to preserve the beauty of Jingu Gaian, particularly those uh, Ginkgo tree Avenue that is uh, it's big tourist attraction, not only for locals and not only for Japanese tourists, but a lot of foreign overseas tourists coming to Tokyo, coming to Japan, attracted by this spot. So, well, I hope we can, you know, continue working and and raising our voice to to reach yeah. the decision makers in the government. Yeah. We need we need more preser preservation of old growth trees, uh, not not cutting down and making more concrete. Less concrete, more trees, right? <laughs> mm. Thank you, thank you so much. So, Ed, let's go back a little bit into your history. You studied in London. You were studying international sea law. Is that right? Right, right. See, yes, actually, uh, that was like 1975. I was a postgraduate uh, PhD student uh, in London. Even those days, we are talking about uh, common heritage of mankind, how to preserve the marine resources, and not only living resources, but also mineral resources. Yeah, those days we are talking about. Uh, who has the right to those deep sea manganese nodules, which contains a lot of mangan, copper, cobalt, nickel. So it, without any framework under the United Nations, those resources may be exploited by only a handful of developed nations with technologies. Now imagine 1970s, 75, you know, not many, Developing countries now are not even, maybe some of countries are not even independent, may not be. So only a handful, a handful of Western or North American sort of countries have technology to exploit. And, uh, you know, so UN was uh, sort of 
us to to sort of have international mechanism under which those uh, resources will be protected. Otherwise, there will be like co colonization of the seabed, which we experienced in like two, three centuries ago, only handful of developed nations colonized the uh, rest of the world. So that was sort of concept of common heritage of mankind was actually, uh, it came from ambassador from Malta, Malta's ambassador to the UN, like way back in 1960s, he actually used this common heritage expression, common heritage of mankind at the UN forum. And, wow. uh, That's amazing. I, I spoke with a journalist and researcher who started an organization called the Outlaw Nation. And he was talking about how difficult it is to have law on the open sea. Nobody is nobody is in control when it's out on the ocean. And I think now we have a lot of issues with deep sea mining and maybe similar kinds of issues. Who's who has the right to deep sea mining, right? Who has the right to those minerals? And what damage can we cause? by doing this new technology, right? So there's a lot of, like you're asking about Jingu Gaia, and I think we need to pause and reassess what's the most fair way to move forward for these new ideas too, right? Wow, very good. The right to those resources, mineral resources. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, after this conference, you and well, Conference on Law of the Sea. They, they actually UN adopted a convention, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, in 1982, under which uh, any coastal states can claim up to 200 miles EEZ, exclusive economic zone, but not territorial waters. Mm. So it's different. In territorial waters, you have the same rights as as if you were on land so you have exclusive right to everything but you know easy it's limited but you know before that some countries claimed 200 mile territorial waters particularly the latin american states were claiming for mm, 200 mile territorial waters so this 82 convention actually when it entered into force, uh, there was chaotic situation, one claiming only 12-mile territorial waters, other states claiming 3-mile territorial waters, and some others, the extremists, claiming 200-mile territorial waters. So under new convention, 1982, Law of the Sea, UN Convention, you know, coastal states can claim up to 12-mile territorial waters and 200 miles. Easy, exclusive economic zone. So it's a situation in order, but still some yeah, problems and some uncertainty about. Uh, mm. so, so you started with the oceans and then you were working for a long time in hospitality and tourism mm -hmm. and talking about CSR. And then, and then more recently, it sounds like you're working on biofuels for the aviation industry and SAF. Mm -hmm. um, you've really worked in a lot of different areas. Uh, should we talk a little bit about uh, CSR? I was reading one of your uh, presentations and you were saying in terms of ESG, Japan is quite strong for the environmental side, but quite weak for the social side and the governance side. And so Japan could really uh, benefit from keeping to international regulation standards. Is that right? Yeah. Well, traditionally, Japan is very sort of strong in environmental protection. Why? Because we we have technology, that's one reason. And, you know, the Japanese companies, corp, corporate, 
do whatever is decided and it is a hard law they they you know comply with the laws rules and regulation but when it's come to soft law it's not like you know it's not the law but it's uh international tendency or uh, you know international societies moving toward that direction uh japanese companies uh, really, really you know hesitant to to comply with or follow those so so long as there is a hard law in in environmental protection it's all laws rules and regulations then japanese companies follow but the social aspect you know exactly you know you've been in japan for quite some time so how few japanese female members of parliament are how few japanese women are in the corporate board board of directors all of this we talk about the empowerment of women uh, but you know it's so long as it's it's low and hard law companies will follow comply but the social aspect is not quite you know hard law in many aspects it's still it is recommended it, it is maybe becoming a law in the near future but at the moment it's not law so so long as it's not binding they are not perhaps following actively mm, so that is sort of problem is uh, Japanese corporate mentality yeah. yeah so the the million dollar question is should Japan have a law compulsory uh, equality in your government your governance inside the company so all top management you have to have 20 percent uh, women in management or the top of the government, you have to have at least 20%. Now, all other countries that have done a quota, they all said before they did it, oh, it's impossible, we can't do that. But mm -hmm. once they did it, they have found a way to have a better balance. Do you think Japan is at a point now where we really need to have that compulsory quota to make change? I think it's uh, compulsory. It's important keyword. Yeah, it have to be compulsory. Otherwise, the corporate decision makers will not follow. Mm, so, to have to make it compulsory. You see, some of the Japanese companies now are having uh, female external board members, like Russia Cup. She is, uh, you know, external board member of some com companies, or uh, trying to increase the number of female top executives and the board members. But the number is still very, very small, just a small fraction. Where if you look at Scandinavian countries, in like Norway, Finland, almost fifty percent of the diet parliament members are women in japan it's no no in some meetings you see the the photographs it's all all men in dark suits so it look for me it's it's normal it's oh it's in japan i i feel oh it's it's a japan but uh, if you show that uh, you know photograph to foreigners you know guidance they said what is going on you don't even have a single woman in in this co company board or in this uh, you know parliamentary sort of meetings so so i have to change but i have to be where well, one is compulsory and also we need the gaiatsu pressure from outside that actually historically unfortunately it's historically true you know, Gaiatsu, the first Gaiatsu we not noticed was uh, Commodore Perry came at the end of Edo era. Uh, is that 1853 or, yeah, uh, Commodore Perry came in three warships and, and that was the very first sort of Gaiatsu we 
we we sort of realized, but uh, we still need the gaiatsu. Yeah. Mm. Speaking speaking of gaiatsu, I think that's a perfect segue into tourism and the positive pressure that tourism can have on oh. sustainable change for Japan. Um, but before we talk about that, uh, Ian has joined us from LinkedIn. Thanks for joining, Ian. He says, uh, in my opinion, the flip side of the phrase could likely be the tragedy of the comments. Uh, you were, we were talking about ocean rights and who has the rights to the ocean. Uh, basically, what can happen when we use all the resource without thinking about the future, potential consequences arising, right? Mm. Yeah, very good point. Thanks, Ian. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit, talk a little bit about uh, tourism, because hey, I, I uh, think, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see, uh, in like 1970s and 80s, right until such time as the UN Convention on Law of the Sea was uh, adapted and, and its entire force. But uh, technology was there to exploit deep sea mineral resources from the depth of 2,000 meters, 3,000 meters. But it was far costly than exploiting land-based resources, mineral resources, same like copper, cobalt, nickel from like Chile or Africa. It was far cheaper to exploit and, and to utilize those resources. That's uh, on, that's a, that, I think that's a reason why developed countries and their companies, you know, have, having technology did not go ahead with actual exploitation because of the financial implications. Mm, because it's, you know, like imagine they exploiting mineral resources from 3,000 meters deep ocean bottom. It is very costly operations. So that was the reason why they deferred from. Mm, and that's, that's a really important point, right? How can we change the cost mechanism that we use in society to make the good choices more price competitive with mm -hmm. the bad choices. At the moment, for mm -hmm. example, the industry that you've been working with recently, biodiesel, making uh, reusing used oil to make jet fuel, this should be cheaper or more price competitive with the more damaging fossil fuel jet fuel right mm -hmm. so how can we change the way we price things which will make it more attractive to have the more sustainable choice would also be really nice to see right mm -hmm. aviation you know uh biofuels it's uh you you hear about bio Biodiesel, yeah, biodiesel has been in, in use for quite some time in many countries. But uh, aviation biofuels is uh, sort of recent, more recent. But nowadays, like over 250,000 flights, commercial flights already using a uh, small amount of biofuel. But, and, and, and of course, our Japanese government are uh, now have a you know uh, strategy to to introduce biofuels by 2030 to replace the existing aviation fuel, which is called kerosene. 10% of kerosene used for Japanese domestic flight will be replaced by biofuels in by 2030, uh, which is a very sort of uh, ambitious. Um, Target. I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think we can materialize that. So, but uh, and it's it's not only Japan, right? According to the information I've been reading about SAF, so sustainable air. Um, ten percent is Japan's target, but Norway wants thirty percent by twenty thirty. Um, so Singapore is also ramping up operations. They are going to have the biggest production in the world uh, through a Finnish company soon. So this is really big news, isn't it? Yes. 
Well, let me just uh, give you small tips about for aviation. Uh, when it comes to domestic flights, Japan domestic or US domestic, or well, Singapore doesn't have domestic, it's, it's all international, but domestic flight is not, is governed by Paris Agreement. And international flights, you know, from Japan to any country outside of Japan, is governed by United Nations Specialized Agency. There is a, two separate frameworks. And the international flight is governed by ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organizations, based in Montreal. That is the UN specialized agency. So we have different approaches. And ICAO has the target of, 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 of uh, reducing um, greenhouse gas CO2 emission by 2% every year, each year. And also IATA, IATA, it's, it's a private association for airlines, International Air Transport Association, IATA. IATA has a similar target, but there is right difference and IATA's target is to reduce CO2 emission by 1.5% instead of 2% every year. And by year 2050, we will have, we'll be, you know, reducing 50% of global emission by 2050. So, so, you know, it's very sort again ambitious target, but airlines are. I think we are in right, in right track, and and doing their best. So we'll be perhaps meeting this 1.5 percent deduction each year, mm. and uh, ICAO, UN Specialized Agency for Aviation, has like a more sort of medium term target, which airlines should have achieved by 2035. Mm. So airlines following like uh, for domestic flight, it's uh, Paris Agreement. And for international flight, it's uh, ICAO sort of uh, target. So it's, but biofuel, without biofuel, we want airlines, you know, in, in any countries will achieve this target. So, you now you try to reduce CO2 emission by taking sort of uh, operational, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of fuel is consumed while you are at the airport or while you are waiting in the queue for landing in line for landing or for departure, a lot of fuel is consumed. You know, sometimes you'll be flying like hovering over Chicago here for like 45 minutes. That consumes a lot of uh, fuel. That means a lot of greenhouse gases is emitted. So try to, you know, have a better air, air traffic control. Or of course, important to have new aircraft with new, more fuel-sufficient sort of uh, engines. That helps, but that may help maybe 15 to 20 percent uh, CO2 emission, uh, you know, savings. So the more we are, like industry, depending upon the use of bio-introduction of biofuels, but at the moment, the price-wise, Biofuels are far more expensive than existing kerosene. Kerosene's prices fluctuate with the, the price of uh, crude oil. So when the crude oil is like uh, 120 yen to, to liter, then kerosene is about 110, slightly lower. Mm. But uh, biofuels, depending on which producer, 
from where you purchase. But at the moment, maybe three times to ten times more expensive than yeah. existing. Well, there's, there's so many interesting issues to consider, right? Uh, you mentioned about airport efficiency. Uh, why can't we have electric trucks uh, help taxi the airplanes out to the runway to save on fuel? Why can't we have solar panels on the airport to reduce all the energy costs of the, running the airport, right? Um, yep. it's, it's not just the airplane flying in the sky, but that that's a big part of it. So overall, it seems like the aviation industry has between two and 4% of the global emissions. Um, and it, in terms of tourism, it's often the target. How can you have sustainable tourism if everybody's flying to Japan, right? Is often the argument that people say, right? Um, so we always say, well, please stay longer. Don't do a one-day, two-day trip. Please stay for two weeks, mm -hmm. and then you make it more worthwhile, right? Um, but certainly the aviation industry is kind of a target for sustainable tourism. We need to clean up the airplane fuel. So that's been kind of your focus for the last 10 years or so. Is that right in your career? Well, yeah. Well, you know, you hit the nail right on the on the head. But uh, yeah, well, some airport doing like uh, solar electricity generation, like you know, on on the roof of they have solar panels on the roof of terminal buildings and here and there, and some airlines uh, with some conditions doing one engine taxing instead of using both engines two engines or four engines using one engine taxing to minimize to economize uh, the fear well for airlines you know uh, economizing is important you know economizing fear means less co2 emission and for, for airline business, more they fly, they, they have to make business. The they more fly, the more CO2 emission they make. So doing business, if you are doing very well means you, you are you know, exhausting a lot of carbon dioxide. So it's, uh, you know, the more you do, the more pollution you are in a way creating. So. We have to make, they have to make, you know, efforts. So and they're doing all these strange, strenuous effort using like new navigational sort of uh, uh, improvement to find out the best route to fly, to avoid headwind, to avoid bad, you know, bad weather. So uh, making all these efforts, strenuous effort, but most importantly, by fear. This is the most effective way to reduce. Mm. Well, let's let's talk about the company Revo um, that you're working as advisor because they're a really interesting company and they're trying to get the reuse of domestic oil mm -hmm. uh, to make the biofuel, and they've been doing it for a long time, right? Based in Kyoto, is it? Yeah. Well, actually. I just, uh, my my time as an advisor came to an end at the end of January, but yes, they've been uh, <clears throat> doing, this is a very unique company. They do, uh, they do collect used cooking oil, mainly uh, used uh, vegetable oil, and they are collecting these from small restaurants and uh, supermarket chains and all those places, well over 1,000 locations, not only around Kyoto in Kansai area, but in some uh, Nagoya area. And they come to Kanto, Tokyo area too, to collect by themselves. And they do uh, refinery, they have refinery in, in Kyoto, been providing biodiesel 
to at one time they are providing biodiesel to Kyoto Shiebasu, Kyoto City bus, and also they were exporting some biodiesel to EU countries. So it is a unique company, and since few years ago they've been working on developing bio aviation biofuels, which is totally different from biodiesel. And when it comes to aviation biofuels, then there is uh, organization in the US and you have to have this certification from this organization called ASTM, American Standard and, and, and ASTM, TAM stands for, mm -hmm, uh, M stands for material, American Standard, Oh, it's on tip of my tongue. Anyway, uh, this is the only place. It's a university, you know, certifies the biofuels. Mm. So, Libra is now actually applying for ASTM. That's so, great. Mm. I, I saw on NHK mm -hmm. um, that... Uh, the Revo uh, CEO uh, mm -hmm. was joining with other organizations in Japan, like ANA and JAL and mm -hmm. uh, other Japanese organizations in Act for Sky. Mm -hmm. So in trying to make this uh, bio jet fuel or this SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, so they need this certification from the US, but he has already uh, tested it, the CEO of Revo, he already used it in race cars. Uh, he had a passion for race cars before and uh, Kyoto's garbage trucks are already using kind of a biodiesel that they've been making. So they've been doing it with uh, domestic used cooking oil for quite a while. Mm. It's really interesting. You were also an advisor with uh, N Englena, another you biodiesel company, is it? Yes. Well, yeah, ASTM stands for American Society for Testing and Materials. Now. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you got it. <laughs> uh, Ugrina is another company. They they already producing uh, aviation biofuels, and they are the the only and the very first Japanese company to use their domestic Japanese domestic bio aviation biofuel on commercial flights. Uh, in twenty twenty one, two years ago, they used. Uh, we actually loaded. Ukraine biofuel on Honda business jet on the commercial flight. Honda business jet is actually operating in Japan uh, as a you know business charter. So Ukraine actually used their fuel on Honda business jet. So this is the very first commercial flight, commercial flight operated by Japan domestic biofuel. So, mm. that's great. Uglina, um, yeah, it's a well, is it's uh, it's a scientific name for uh, small, uh, like microalgae, like seaweed. Mm. And Uglina is making uh, their you know, major business is. Uh, are producing uh, nutrition, my nutrition supplement. I I don't know if you have heard of midori jiru or or aojiru midori jiru. Ugrena is midori jiru. Mm. Mm. Produce midori jiru, but uh, it's, they, it's like they already have Japanese wheatgrass. Like you have wheatgrass shots in America. Mm -hmm. uh, Japanese algae or green, very green drink, super healthy, right? <laughs> mm. Well, Ukraine actually invested a uh, lot of money to build a pilot plant in Yokohama, and now in the process of building commercial scale, uh, commercial uh, scale uh, refinery, but not in Japan. 
but outside of Japan to my Ugrenas, you know, <clears throat> aviation biofuels used on commercial flight, uh, uh, not only containing not only Ugrena uh, oil made out of Ugrena, but also uh, used cooking oils as a feedstock. Mm. Mm. So at the moment, I think used cooking oil is the most popular uh, feedstock. Yeah. And nobody challenges about the sustainability of used cooking oil because it's used. Otherwise, it will be just thrown away. But when it's come to like using other, when it's come to using other feedstocks like palm oil, okay there'll be a lot of argument and a lot of challenges yeah not only competing with the foods but also social uh you know element or this uh yeah but but because it's used because it's a waste you're reusing the waste um no nobody can argue with the sustainability mm -hmm. of that um but one surprising thing in the nhk show they were saying that a lot of the companies that have a lot of used oil used cooking oil like the fast food chains or the mm -hmm. the tempura shops probably all over japan they are already giving it to other businesses it's used for farmers use it for animal feed um other companies are using it for different purposes um i always have the image that used cooking oil is a real hassle because it's very difficult to throw away mm. but it sounds like it's kind of changed the culture of it has changed in japan and people are actually really happy to take it and reuse it. So that's a, a nice change in the trend. Well, exactly. Strong demand for used cooking oils, as you likely put. Uh, you know, cooking used cooking oil is used for animal feed, particularly the chicken. In chicken farming, I think used cooking oil is the most sort of uh, welcome uh, the feed so there is a lot of demand so the prices i'm i'm afraid the prices will go up it's happening not only in japan but like you said in singapore you know they are uh, there is a finnish company called neste is building world largest refinery for biofuels like 600 million project or something so there's a heavy demand for used cooking oils because nobody claims, nobody challenges sustainability of used cooking oils. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard of the demand for used cooking oil. This is new to me. So, so if you eat French fries, if you eat tempura in Japan, you should feel good that you're going to help this new industry, mm -hmm. huh? <laughs> yeah. So to industry happy, we have to eat more fried Kentucky, more McDonald's, more uh, tonkatsu. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's change it to more sustainable food. Let's eat more uh, soy meat karage and kurumafu karage and oh. vegan vegan fried food. That would be more sustainable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's so interesting. But one other thing that uh, was in the NHK program was a lot of the big chains are already selling their used cooking oil outside Japan. So it's very difficult to even use it domestically. I had no idea. Mm. Well, that's true. And and like uh, Levo or Ugrina have to sort of uh, compete with uh, chicken farmers and i understand there is a big subsidy from the ministry of uh, agriculture uh, for the chicken farmers so the 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 used cooking oil you know the the sellers are going to 
those chicken farmers because you know there is subsidies so it would be more profitable to sell to not to oh. you know I've never heard that. Or you greener. So um, now there's there's one different way to make it. Um, it sounds like I was listening to a talk by Masaki Takao-san, and he was making uh, fuel from clothing. So you can make biofuel from clothing, maybe because the clothes like polyester is made from oil. Is that right? Actually, Japan Airlines, uh, the company I didn't work for, I worked for in JAL once uh, did that, uh, collecting all used, disused crew uniforms or cabin attendant uniforms. Uh, maybe they're synthetic or polyester, I, I don't know. But, you know, uh, by burning all those, and there is a gas from gas to liquid, and you know all this process uh, you know we we call these feedstocks feedstocks could be anything uh of course used cooking oil or sugar cane sugar or palm or there are some less sort of uh controversial feedstocks like uh, camelina jatorofa which it doesn't compete with food and which grows in like a desert. So it's it's less sort of controversial than palm or sugar based, uh, you know, oil. So it's, uh, or, or, you know, during like uh, last war in Germany, Germany, Germany didn't, you know, doesn't have uh, oil. They have so they have coal, so they are burning coal and making gas to liquid, gas to oil, and all these. There are like uh, seven processes so far approved by ASTM, the certification. So their process is different, and and the feedstocks are different. So, mm, but. Used cooking oil is the most popular, and 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 everybody wants yeah. used cooking oil. Well, let's yeah, yeah, let's eat eat more French fries. I like that idea. <laughs> mm. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk. You you are an expert on CSR. You've worked in the hospitality sector in Japan. How do you see that Japan? hospitality industry or the tourism industry how could it change to become a bit more sustainable do you have a vision for the future well to be sustainable i think it's uh, sustainable tourism i think it's a unwto sort of defined but i i don't remember exactly but you know it has to be not only environmentally, but also it has to be a sustainable tourism have to meet, I think it's right, three conditions. One is economic growth. Then second is socio-culturally uh, favorable. And, and finally, environmentally sort of sound. It have to be, it have to meet all these three conditions that to start with and 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 you know but the japan has joining abe-san uh during during his uh, era uh, particularly from his second sort of administration in 12 2012 uh, you know japan was positioning the tourism as a core pillar of the economic development, a country's economic growth strategy, and 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 as a, like a Joker as a trump card for the for the vitalization of the local economies. Mm. So tourism, I think, it's at the moment in we you know all these inbound visitors last. Uh, 
before COVID-19, we had the record high 32 million visitors coming to Japan. And our target is, still remains as uh, in that 60 million in 2030. Yeah, yeah. Even after <laughs> this COVID-19 mm, outbreak, COVID-19, we haven't changed. So we keep in the same target. Uh, but you you know to achieve this, there, there there are many promotions going on. But most importantly, I think it's it because it's the visitors, inbound the visitors who decide. You no, know, it it was up until like 2015, the government was leading the promotion Japan as a destination. Prime Minister Koizumi said the Visit Japan campaign, he launched that, uh, and making all these uh, gorgeous posters and, and, and promotion videos. But it, well, it worked to some extent, but I think it's more important to appeal to each group and each nations. It's there are, they have all different sort of, yeah ideas and different sort of concepts. So when it's come to visiting countries, they these days for the last 10 years, they're using social media. Social media is the most effective way of promoting your country, your town. So I often said, you know, like all of a sudden one day there are every day 600 to 800 Thai visitors coming to small shrine in Oita prefecture, which I never heard of this. But you know, these are all through social media because people trust whatever is spread from their fellow countrymen, countrywomen by their own language. So the promotion is important, but how you promote, how you reach out to the people is more important. So the use of social media, I think the, the government is now, Japanese government is also realizing and doing social media, utilizing social media to the maximum extent. But when it comes to sustainable aviation, you know, in Japan, like France, not as many as in France, but Japan has like 25 World UNESCO World Heritage. Out of 25, 20 are natural, uh, 20 are historical sites, and five being uh, natural sites like Shiretoko or Yakushima, Ogasawara, or this. Mm. But some people, local people who were actually promoting and, and uh, location uh, for, you know, uh, <clears throat> UNESCO World Heritage. Once they they know they were the location, the city or monument is uh, inscribed, they stop it there. But it's not right, you know, the, the, the the target is just to be inscribed. No, once you get designated, inscribed as UNESCO World Heritage, you have heavy responsibility to maintain and preserve the site, whether it's natural site or historical site, historical locations. There are heavy duty to do that, and that's their responsibility to maintain because whatever they succeeded from their ancestors, their you know, generations ago, have to be transferred to next generation, not only Japanese living in Japan, but for the rest of the world. They have heavy responsibility. Unfortunately, some of those uh, campaigners don't realize their goal is to get inscribed. That, is not end. The most important thing is to continue, maintain, and preserve whatever the heritage they 
hesitated, you know. Mm, so that's that's a really good point, and I think um, the idea of having tourism, which benefits local as well as visitors, having that balance is really important to sustainability. But absolutely, what you're talking about is very connected, right? Not just getting listed as one of the top UNESCO World Heritage places that gives you pride, but but how can local people benefit in terms of uh, for their business or for their jobs, in their society being better, their economy being better, but also don't damage their local environment, which they also need for quality of life, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. You need that. UNESCO is really positive in many ways because it, it gets access to places that people wouldn't otherwise know about probably, right? Mm -hmm. And it does preserve culture and it does preserve heritage. Um, but you're right, it's not only about being listed, it, it's an ongoing effort is very important. Yeah, also in the wake of this COVID-19, I think we should know people have more awareness of the pro protecting others' health, yeah. So, you know, like summits, you have to avoid summits, but equally, I think we have to have that mentality to, to, to make environment more sparse, not congested for the tourists, yeah. Avoiding crowds, yes, a very popular theme whenever I talk about sustainable tourism. Um, I'm really impressed by like, even Kyoto, the most famous uh, Kiyomizu Dera, for example, uh, they open up at 6.30. And when I went there, right when they opened, I met a lot of local people who mm -hmm. go there early when it's not crowded and they enjoy going to these famous places for themselves as a local resident. And that was really wonderful to see that. And that's because of the organization thinking, how can we make some benefit for local people, right? So uh, we also see that on Miyajima. Uh, Miyajima's most famous Itsukushima Shrine, they open at 6.30. And you see people who stay on Miyajima Island are able to go early. Mm -hmm. And people who come from the city, they can't make it there for that early time. So mm -hmm. you're giving extra benefit to local people, but also giving benefit to the people who travel more sustainably. You're giving some value there. So I think those kind of strategies are really nice to see. Mm. Well, obviously, you know, a lot of those places, not only not necessarily in Japan, depending upon the tourists, the money tourists brings, and 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 that actually, uh, you know, creates a lot of jobs and also local economy grows. So, but at the same time, over tourism brings problems, and of course, in some instances, they said it's. Uh, uh, you know, like a pollution is. And in Kyoto, I think quite lately, I think recently, they decided not to sell one-day bus passes. Yeah, because some locals, particularly the elderly people, complain about, you know, they never ever able to ride on the bus because it's always full with the tourists not necessarily overseas tourists, but Japanese tourists as well. So not selling those one-day coupon, uh, but I think they are selling like one-day bus and subway coupons. So our, I don't know how it works, how it helps the local, particularly the elderly people who are afraid of getting on the crowded buses. Mm. But, uh... that's a, the health and the overcrowding, that's a really important point. Um, Hiroshima has started a special sightseeing bus. So to give a bus just going to the sightseeing places, and then that takes congestion 
and overcrowding away from the regular buses as well. Um, so that's those are other ideas that could be tried in other areas, definitely. Uh, we just just have a few more minutes. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about, Tedazaki-san? So, I don't know, I'm jumping from uh, aviation biofuels to, <laughs> to other topics and, 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 and where we started with uh, what's happened at uh, Tokyo Metropolitan Government and, 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 and but uh, where in, again, I like to stress, but well, ginkgo trees, maybe some of the trees may be saved, but the entire landscape, what's the value to this attraction is not, on, not, not only the ginkgo trees or not only that uh, picture gallery, it's called Meiji Kinenkan picture gallery. It's the entire landscape and that's create great tourist attraction and and um, without Ginkgo Tree Avenue, it's it's no longer Jingu Gaiyan. It's a different, and and I stress that this point during this press conference at the Tokyo, where for Japanese, you know, turning sort of leaves in 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 autumn from from green to yellow or red. It's, uh, we've seen, I grew up with those beautiful koyo here and there in Tokyo, but for overseas visitors, particularly the, the, those coming from Southeast Asia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, having distinct four seasons is something they don't have. And and they really appreciate far more than we we think they might. So it is a great great experience for them, great tourist attraction. So why do we change it? Why do we scrap and and build the new things? Why don't we you know preserve whatever is appreciated by everybody? Nobody complains about falling leaves. Somebody have to clean, but it's uh, it's a great work, but but it's so beautiful. Mm, so I don't know. We are so fortunate to have all these distinct four seasons, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. But for many overseas visitors, it is a luxury to have four seasons and the beautiful scenery, changing scenery. Yeah. So uh, I think it's 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 <clears throat> it's not the trees, not the building, but the entire landscape have to be preserved. That that is a value. Mm. Yeah, I I agree, and we've had uh, projects here in Hiroshima too, uh, old, very beautiful heritage old buildings, beautiful old trees being redeveloped and not not much discussion with local people about how we should redevelop it what should be saved what do we value why is the rush and i i feel that for your campaign for jingu gaian as well why why so much of a rush to change it like you said when nobody's complaining everybody loves it why change it right exactly well, there is obviously business reason, and 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 you know uh, maybe it may create some jobs during the construction. Yeah, but in the long run, you might what you might gain is it's is much smaller than you might lose. So that's. Uh, and you can never get what you have now. You can never get that back in the same value, in the same way, right? Yeah, that's our hour. Thank you so much, Tedazaki-san, for joining and sharing. Like you said, we jumped around so many different topics, but 
I think it all has the underlying foundation of sustainability, uh, value for society, value for the environment, and value for the economy, and what's the best way forward. So I really appreciate your insights and your perspectives on SAF, Sustainable Aviation uh, Fuel, and the tourism industry and Jingu Gayan. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank you, Joy. Thanks for having me. Yes, I really appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. Thank right. you. Right. So I enjoyed much. talking to you. Thank oh, you. Great. Wonderful talking to you. And thank you, everybody, for joining. And see you again next time. Have a great weekend, everyone. Likewise. Thank you. you all seem like such nice people. Has anyone ever seen a mess like this? Some of us don't mind crying in public. Some of us are just dying to be missed. And you all seem like such nice people. It's truly my pleasure to make your company. Some of our paths may diverge over the years. All of you left a certain mark on me. so far